Welcome to the On and Off the Podium podcast. My name is Wendy Higdon, and this is episode number one, Strategies for Success, Beginning Band, the second day of school and beyond. Thank you for joining me. The new school year is crashing down upon us, and the signs are everywhere. The back-to-school displays are fully in place in our local stores, and I'm starting to see lots of articles and blogs pop up about things that you can do as a teacher to get your school year off to a great start. Uh, Things like organization, teaching procedures, and expectations to your students. And those are awesome pieces of advice. Every teacher needs to spend time on those very, very important things as they start a new group of students off on a school year. But what do you do after you've established procedures and expectations? What happens on the second day of school or the second week of school? That's what we're going to talk about today in our podcast. Now, I'm going to be focusing a lot on the beginning band program, but a lot of what I'm talking about today can apply across the board, whether you work with beginners or high school age students. So let's dive in. As we talk together today, I'm going to be sharing with you some ideas for keeping the success going once the instruments are in the students' hands. A really important principle in business is something called the Pareto Principle. It talks about the fact that 80% of the the effects come from 20% of the causes. And I have found this to be true in teaching as well. If we take a look at 20% of those skills and fundamentals that we teach, they really impact much, much more when we're working with students. Uh, That 20% of skills has a direct impact on about 80% of the things that we do regularly in the classroom. That's why it's important to take our time at the beginning and make sure that we really have helped our students to master that small group of fundamental skills that are so important. My beginner program starts with students in the sixth grade, and I do see them daily for 45 minutes. Another important uh, aspect of my teaching is I I make the conscious decision to teach music reading and rhythm reading in conjunction with learning the instrument rather than doing that separately uh, before we uh, get instruments in the students' hands. It's certainly a valuable and a viable option to teach some music theory and and music reading first, uh, but that's not the way I, I have chosen to set things up in my program. Some reasons for this uh, are that I I just feel like it's uh, a lot more engaging for students, it's exciting, and it gives our music reading a concrete purpose. And it doesn't overwhelm kids if we go slow enough and really dive into those uh, those specific skills and, and break everything down for kids. Even so, my students don't create sounds on their instrument until about the third lesson. And I don't send instruments home with kids until I feel that they are ready. They can create a correct embouchure, 
or close to a correct embouchure. Uh, they know how to properly assemble and disassemble the instrument, and they can create a characteristic tone on their instrument. That could be day three. Uh, sometimes it's a little bit longer, and that's okay. Uh, students coming into beginning band don't have any preconceived notions of what instruction's going to be like. This is brand new for them. So really, you can set things up to work however you want, and in whatever way is going to help your students be the most successful. So what do I do in those first couple of days with instruments before the students even create a sound? Well, I'm using this time to uh, set up those fundamental skills. And we're going to talk about those in detail. Legendary basketball coach John Wooden is well known for uh, the way he approached his basketball players at the start of the season. Uh, and he's known to have said, we, we will begin by learning how to tie our shoes. That seems very, very elementary, uh, especially for college-level basketball players. But Wooden's idea was that they're played on a hard floor. And if they're not putting their shoes and their socks on properly, they can get blisters on their feet, their laces can come untied during a practice or even worse during a game. And so he wants to make sure he's setting up his players for success right from the very, very beginning. If you look at our own world, legendary band director Eddie Green talks about this idea that the smallest detail could be the thing that triggers all of the problems. And so with those two focuses in mind, we're really going to work hard at the beginning to make sure that everything is in place and that we're not setting up our students uh, for issues on down the road. So during those first days of instruction, before we're really playing at all, um, I'm going to take some time to talk about body position. And the terminology that I use is a little bit different than what you might hear from a lot of people. Uh, it, it's a lot different than maybe what you might read in a band method book. The words that I used are things like balanced, tension-free, natural, and soft. As we use these words with the students, we're also practicing each element. Uh, so we start by standing, and we get the feet flat on the floor. We evenly balance our weight uh, with feet about shoulder width apart, and we talk about this idea of posture as sitting as we would stand. So when we lower ourselves to the chair, everything from the waist up remains exactly the same as if we were standing. Other terms that I use, some catchphrases that I use with students, I talk about gently pressing the belly button toward the spine. If you just try that on your own, you'll see that that helps to lift up the rib cage and straighten the back and just make the student a little bit taller. We talk about lifting the bottom two ribs up off of the stomach. And again, that opens up our, our, our breathing apparatus so that students can take in that air that they're going to need for playing their instruments. I also want the shoulders relaxed down and back, and I want the head to be floating, almost like it was a helium balloon attached to the neck. And as I talk through this, these terms with students, we are practicing this. And I really encourage students to kind of memorize what does it feel like when we sit this way so that when you come back to this, you know what that feeling is and you can recreate it time and time again, either in class or at home.
We spend time working on hand position, and I simply start by having the students dangle their hands down to their sides, very, very relaxed, and then one at a time they'll bring up their right hand or they'll bring up their left hand, keeping the fingers just as relaxed as they were down at their sides. And we talk about this idea that the fingers are gently curved in a flat C shape, and that there's no tension. One of the things that we do uh, when we actually get the hands on the instrument, and again, this is a couple of days down the road, but we, we talk about this idea that where the thumbs are placed are absolutely key. So I spend a lot of time making sure that the thumbs are exactly in the right position, and not only that, but they're pointing in the right direction. For example, with woodwind instruments, the left thumb is going to go at about 2 o'clock, although... With uh, students these days, they don't always know where 2 o'clock is. So I use a simple give me a thumbs up, give me a thumbs to the side, and then give me halfway in between. And that gets the thumbs pointed in the right direction. That works great for oboe, clarinet, saxophone, uh, all of those woodwind instruments. And what that does is that gets the fingers of the left hand pointed gently downward and in that, right, uh, that correct position for the students. Uh, we spend a lot of time uh, with the right hand. Uh, again, for woodwinds, that placement of the right thumb is going to determine where the right hand fingers uh, lie across the keys. You're going to want to spend just as much time with, uh, with thumb placement on your brass instruments because, again, that's going to help the fingers fall into the correct position. Once we have done that, we also learn the names of our fingers. And uh, for woodwinds, I, I identify the fingers of the left hand, one, two, three, uh, and then the fingers of the right hand, four, five, and six. Later on, we'll learn about thumbs and pinkies. But those finger numbers are absolutely crucial to everything that I'm going to be doing coming on down the line. Why do I spend so much time on hand position and hand placement and that relaxed feel, that soft feel to the fingers, that gentle curve. Well, if you look down the, the line, an incorrect hand placement or tension in the hands can cause all kinds of issues with technique down the road. I don't want my students to have to, to relearn that, so I set them up for success right at the very, very beginning. We're also learning and taking time to identify the parts of the instrument and learning correct assembly and disassembly. Uh, one of the things that I've found really, really helpful when we get to some tricky parts of assembly and disassembly, if you have a document camera in your classroom, that's a great tool to use. For example, when we assemble the clarinet and students have to learn how to raise that bridge key by uh, pressing down the keys of the, the left hand, uh, I can show that on a document camera, blow it up, they can see it on a screen, and it's so much easier for them to see and understand as opposed to me just explaining it. I can actually model where the fingers go, which fingers we press down, and how those two parts go together. A document camera is also great for teaching other things uh, early on in instruction, like how and where do you oil valves, things like putting the reed and the ligature on the mouthpiece. Those are really intensive fine motor skills for kids as they're learning an instrument and uh, they're places where a lot of mistakes can be made. So if I can if I can show them up close and personal uh, by use of a document camera that helps with students understanding. If you don't have access to a document camera take some pictures or find some pictures online and and show them 
photographs, uh, print them off if you need to, uh, put them on the computer, something so that students can actually see in detail. There are always, most method books do have, have photographs in them, but for me, uh, those photographs don't really dial in to those basics of, of assembly where, they, where we really need the attention. I'm also spending time teaching the students proper embouchure for their instruments. And uh, this takes a little bit longer with woodwind students. Uh, woodwind embouchures have to be built. There's multiple steps into creating a woodwind embouchure. And I want to take it a step at a time. So for example, if we're talking about flute embouchure, I'm going to take time to talk about how that lower lip actually pouts out just a little bit. Um, I, I like to have students place their index finger underneath their bottom lip and just pout that bottom uh, lip over their finger. And then once we've got that shape happening, we can replace the finger with the head joint and talk about how the bottom lip actually should cover a little bit of that embouchure hole. With clarinet students, I talk about the placement of that bottom lip uh, and that it should feel like we're putting chapstick on the bottom lip. And what that does is uh, when you put chapstick on, on your lip, you actually stick your bottom teeth out just slightly or stick your jaw out just slightly uh, so that that lip is, is flat over your bottom teeth. Um, and, and that's a lot easier for kids to understand. Uh, most of them have, have used chapstick, and, and, and they know what that feels like. Uh, we talk with clarinet players about the valley in the chin, where, where the chin is actually pulled in, and, and it's just concave there against, uh, against the, the jawbone. And, and we let students feel that. So we work on a step at a time as we build these embouchures for students. And that takes time and it takes practice. And as we go through this, I'm constantly checking, do we have this right each step of the way? Whether there's three steps or five steps to creating that, that embouchure, what does it look like? By the way, when I'm teaching beginners, and I think this is a hugely powerful strategy, I completely eliminate music stands. They're off to the sides of the room or out of the room altogether. And what that does is that allows me to see each child from head to toe. I, there's nothing that they can hide behind. And so if there's an issue with their body position, their hand position, um, they're not holding the instrument correctly, their left hand is, is on the bottom and their right hand is on the top, any of those kinds of things that happen so commonly with students who are just in the very, very early stages of learning their instrument, I can see it, I can catch it, and I can correct it right off the bat. And so I will eliminate music stands in my beginner classroom for as long as I can. Maybe that's a couple of weeks, whatever I can manage. And, and I will do that once we get into um, actually reading notation, if I can project the music on the screen in my classroom, uh, either from my computer, um, using smart music, throwing something under the document camera, whatever I can do, or even just teaching the students some simple, simple exercises without any notation, just teaching them to them by rote, it really makes a huge difference because visually I can really catch a lot of problems very, very early on in the students' uh, learning so that they don't become habits. 
Along that same line, I'm going to, as much as possible, uh, I'm going to try to have wide aisles and a center aisle in my classroom. I want to be able to get up close to each individual student. I want to be able to get right in front of them and, and help them and give them feedback and, and help them adjust their hands and help them uh, with any kind of fundamental skill issue with hand or body position embouchure that they're learning right at the beginning. I can't do that if I can't get up close with the students. So wide aisles, center aisles, room to be able to move. Um, one of the things that I make sure that we do is we get cases, books out of the way. So anything that the child has with them at their seat in band has to fit under the chair. If it can't fit under the chair, it can't be at their seat. So we learn right off the bat that everything goes under the chair, the case goes under the chair or between their chair and the next chair, but everything is out of the aisleways, and that lets me get in and out and really give those students a lot of individual feedback and attention. Notice, notice that I'm talking a lot about watching the students at this age. You know, we're band directors, we're really focused on what we hear, but we can get a lot of information about what is happening correctly or incorrectly by looking at our students. We can catch mistakes. We can see tension in their face if there's some kind of an embouchure issue. We can see tension in their hands that may turn into problems with technique down the road. We can see issues with body position or with posture, and we can correct those things. So it's really, really important to watch what the students are doing, not just how they sound. And as we go through this, we're going to do lots and lots of repetition. Um, I don't spend, on, spend time on any one thing for very long, but I do, that, do this for multiple days. So I'm going to be revisiting embouchure and uh, learning how to create sounds on the small instruments. So mouthpiece only, head joint only, mouthpiece and barrel, mouthpiece and neck, reed and vocal, uh, oboe reed only. I'm going to be doing that for several weeks for the first five or, or ten minutes of rehearsal just so that we can really isolate those embouchure skills, those breathing skills. And, and we won't do it for very long. You know, five minutes would be plenty of time, uh, you know, once we're, we've got things established. But I'm going to be doing lots and lots of repetition. Another strategy for success for my beginners, especially for my beginners, is that everybody plays or demonstrates something by themselves every single day. First of all, I want students to be comfortable playing. I want them to understand that I can help them the best when I can give them specific individualized feedback. And I can only do that if I hear them by themselves. So it's not anything to be nervous about. This is the, this is the way we learn and grow and get better. And this is how I can help you the best. So, you know, it might be just a single note. It's nothing lengthy. It's not a formal assessment. It is very, very informal, but it is so crucial to students. That feedback makes a huge difference. And when students can take that feedback, try it again, and then get more feedback, that's a powerful learning strategy. Now, I mentioned just a moment ago that I, I start with a small instrument. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to get to the full instrument for several days. We're going to spend a lot of time in uh, really isolating those fundamental skills of embouchure and breathing and making sure that the students can get a characteristic sound on the small instrument before we ever jump into trying to play notes on the entire thing. I think that, you know, sometimes we get in a hurry. There's this pressure 
there's this pressure to perform and, and to be ready for whatever it is, whether it's a, it's a concert coming down the road, whether it's, um, you know, what we think parent expectations are or what student expectations are. But it's really, really important to make sure that you're setting things up right. And that means that we don't go faster than the students can go, the majority of students, without achieving some success. Another great strategy for students of any age, but you've got to do this with your beginners, is use mirrors. Now, I just went online and searched for locker mirrors. I was able to find and purchase a set of classroom locker mirrors for about $2 a piece or maybe even a dollar a piece. This is a great time of year to do that because everybody's selling locker mirrors in the school supply aisle. Um, but if you go someplace like Amazon or someplace where you can buy them in bulk, you can get them even cheaper. I found ones that have just a plastic frame around them so the students aren't going to get cut on the on the sharp edges. And they, they're the size and the weight that a student can hold it in one hand or set it on the music stand and really get a, an up-close look at what's happening with my face. What does my embouchure look like? And, and does it look the way that I've been instructed and the way I've been shown? Very, very powerful tool as we get kids started. Another really powerful strategy that you're going to want to use is praise. Praise is so important at this level. At the beginning level, everybody's great. Even if they're not great, everybody's great. Now, we might be giving feedback um, as a way to do things differently or better that's going to improve, but we're never negative with a student. We're always finding those things. If, if they're doing it better, if there's improvement, we're going to praise that like crazy. Make your beginning students love coming to class. Make your beginning students feel like they are successful even if the sounds aren't pretty right at the beginning. Speaking of which, students even on the second or third day of instruction can tell the difference between a good sound on their instrument and a poor sound on their instrument. Uh, it's very, very important in those first weeks to do some modeling as you're teaching. Uh, modeling both what correct sound is and, oh gosh, Listen to this sound. What's wrong with this sound? What don't you like with this sound? Well, it's too, too loud or it's too forced. Students, even in the very earliest stages of instruction, can uh, distinguish between a good sound and a poor sound. And then you can start to talk about, okay, now if you're getting this kind of sound, what do you need to do differently? A lot of students in the beginning, um, they really want to please you. And so they take your instructions extremely literally. Uh, so if you're telling students you need to use more air, you need to use more air, then some of your students are going to use way too much air. So being able to identify where, where I'm forcing the sound, where I'm blowing too hard, is a very, very important skill. You know, one of the things that I hear from uh, teachers all the time is that my saxophones play too loud. Well, they don't have to. Um, saxophone is, a, is an instrument where it's really easy to play with a forced sound, but when students can recognize what a good sound is, and if you insist upon it every time, uh, playing with 
the right amount of airstream to get the most vibrant resonant sound that you can as opposed to just blowing as hard as you can or using too little air. Uh, we can use too little air but we can also use too much and so if you take the time to build that embouchure, you take the time to talk about what a good sound is and what a good sound is not, that can really make a huge difference. Um, some final ideas before we close for today. I think that it's very very important to use kid-friendly language. We don't want to get too technical with our terminology. I am a firm believer that we, we tell students what they need to know. And if it is not something that they need to know at this moment in time, maybe that's something that can wait for another, another lesson. Um, at the beginning stages of learning an instrument, it's pretty overwhelming. And I think, you know, as, as professional music educators, we kind of forget even we forget just how much information the students are learning as they start their instruments. Keeping our comments very kid-friendly, uh, very targeted, very specific, but not overwhelming is going to be a hugely powerful strategy as you get your beginners off to success. In future podcasts, we will be talking more about ways that you can help your beginner musicians be successful. But until then, good luck with the start of your school year. Please follow me on my blog, onandoffthepodium.com, on Facebook's On and Off the Podium page, or on Twitter, at Wendy Higdon. This is the On and Off the Podium podcast. Have a great day.